You're listening to an IOE podcast from the UCL Institute of Education. Powered by UCL Minds. This is Research for the Real World. Conversations with researchers about the paths they've taken to shape our everyday lives. Research for the Real World. Hello, I'm Carrie Wong. I'm an assistant professor here at the IOE. In this episode, I'm delighted to be talking with Pravita Patale. Pravita is a senior lecturer in quantitative social science and holds joint appointments between the MRC Unit of Lifelong Health and Aging and the Center for Longitudinal Studies here at the Institute. She received her PhD from the Department of Clinical, Educational, and Health Psychology at UCL, based at the Evidence-Based Practice Unit. After that, she held a postdoctoral position at the Center for Longitudinal Studies and was lecturer and senior lecturer in population mental health and child development at the University of Liverpool. Pravita's research primarily falls in the area of child development and epidemiology, with a focus on mental health through the life course. This includes understanding the prevalence, risk factors, consequences, developmental pathways and interventions to promoting better mental health, as well as how mental health is conceptualized and measured, the intersection between physical and mental health, as well as the inequalities in mental health and well-being. Her work also focuses on community-based interventions, thinking not just about the treatment, but also about preventing problems before they get really out of hand, reducing stigma around mental ill health, and promoting greater well-being. Pravita has received the British Psychological Society's Award for Outstanding Doctoral Research Contributions to Psychology, the university-wide Alan Beeston Early Career Research Award, and was also on the Forbes 30 Under 30 list for the Science and Healthcare category. Most recently, Pravita and Professor Emla Fitzsimmons also won the 2020 ESRC Celebrating Impact Prize for their research on children and young people's mental health. So we're very excited to have this opportunity to chat with Pravita today. Hello, Pravita. Welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Kerry. Happy to be here. So just to start off, I guess one of my first questions is, how did you become interested in your area of research, and in particular in mental health? That's a really interesting question. I think Uh, Because I started researching children's mental health, I've always been interested in when children are not happy. So because I sort of feel like childhood is the time in our life course where we have, you know, all this wonder and and sort of, you know, exploration and education and friends. And just to be unhappy or have really poor mental health during these first two decades of life feels like a very sort of unhappy thing. But also, as we know from lots of research, sets you up for the rest of your life in non-optimal ways. So I think this is why I'm interested. I'm interested in the mental health of the whole population, because if we imagine mental health as being a continuous construct across all people, some people obviously have very severe mental health difficulties, but everybody has mental health. Like we all have good mental health and bad mental health. Sometimes the same person has good, bad, and very bad mental health on the same day. So I think it's important when we think about mental health that we don't think about just ill health. 
because that's what most people when they talk about mental health assume we're talking about mental health disorders. I think it's important that we think about our mental health as being something we all have all the time. And for that to be to be good, it won't be good all of the time, but for our mental health to be good more of the time, more often than not, I think is what my research is trying to do. Yes, that's a very interesting way of what, putting it, kind of not just focusing on the bad side of things, but also on average, if we're able to feel better and having good mental health, that we, then we win overall, right? <laughs> I guess based on your research then, given that you focus on uh, looking at results or data that are from birth cohort studies and everything like that, what are some predictors of poor mental health, but also maybe good mental health, as you spoke about? So for our listeners, what are some risk factors that they should be aware of, as well as the protective factors that they should do more of? Yeah, so there's obviously risk factors that are more structural in nature. So for example, socioeconomic circumstances. So we know that sort of poverty is a risk factor for mental health. We also see that there are um, gender differences in the experience of many common mental health difficulties that appear in adolescence. So for example, sort of symptoms of depression, anxiety, and self-harming behaviors are much more common in women compared to men. And this is a gender inequality. So I think lots of the risk factors based on sociodemographic characteristics reflect societal challenges, sort of like sexism and racism and sort of inequality. And But however, obviously, there's also things about your experiences that are risk and protective factors for mental health. So for example, children who experience bullying, that's a risk factor for mental health. So you're more likely to have lots of children who are bullied, you know, struggle with having been bullied. But similarly, having sort of good peer relationships or good quality friendships can be a protective factor. So I think Lots of these things go hand in hand. So, for example, social support networks, having people you can talk to, people you trust are important protective factors for mental health. And then obviously there's wider structural things that are also protective factors, right? So, for example, if you think about younger adults these days, lots lots more of us work in the gig economy and have insecure contracts compared to used to be the case generations ago. And obviously, you can imagine that financial insecurity might be a risk factor for mental health and not having to worry about your next meal would be a protective factor for mental health. So I think, again, important to think about things like structural things, but also sort of behaviors. So, for example, exercising, sleeping well, eating well are all related to people having better mental health or being able to manage their mental health better. Um, so there's always yeah things we can do, but also things maybe that we can't do that are more societal things that governments and policymakers need to change to make our mental health better across the population. Great. Thanks for addressing that. And so, you know, when I look at your work, I can see that you work quite, you know, you're very well connected with uh, collaborators across different disciplines. I'm wondering then, how do you actually keep on top of all of this? A very short answer would be, I don't. So, yeah, so you're right. I work with colleagues from many, many disciplines. I mean, including, I am part of two very multidisciplinary units. So the Center for Longitudinal Studies has, you know, colleagues who are sociologists, economists, demographers, um, epidemiologists. Um, and then in the MRC unit, a much more sort of medical-based, but still sort of clinical epidemiologists, people who do imaging studies, genetic studies. So part of how I do this 
you, you can't, it's very hard to be an expert in multiple disciplines. So the best way to do multidisciplinary research is to just work with experts in different disciplines and everybody brings the expertise to the table. And this is reflected in my own research team. So I, my research team, I have colleagues with backgrounds in anthropology, economics, epidemiology, biology, neuroscience, psychology. But also I think, so one of the things to remember is that something like mental health is a really complex problem. It needs multidisciplinary perspectives for us to make this better. No discipline on its own is being going to be able to solve mental health and mental ill health. And those who think that is possible are not appreciating the complexity of something like mental health because mental health is produced through a combination of, you know, parts of biological risk, psychological processes, societal and environmental factors all coming together in really complicated ways. So n none of these disciplines can single-handedly crack it. So I think the sort of end goal being we want to make everybody's mental health better, I think the only way to work towards that is to work with different disciplines. So it is difficult, but equally, I think it's the only way. Mm. What are the differences on the definition of mental health that we speak of or use in our research and also mental well-being so that our listeners know what exactly we're talking about? So when I use mental health, I sort of think about the way that the WHO and things think about mental health or health generally. So what health not just being the absence of disease, but being good health or well-being. So I think when I think talk about mental health, I think about this the same way. So mental health is not just the absence of mental illness, but is also sort of good mental health. So what some people would call flourishing, but essentially living a life where you happy and doing things that are meaningful and you're satisfied with the way your life is going and what you're doing. So I think mental health is a sort of large umbrella term which includes mental illness but also includes good mental health or and satisfaction with your life, feeling worthwhile, meaning and purpose. I think all of these are aspects of mental health. Great. Thanks for clarifying that. And so, you know, you mentioned some advantages of having multiple perspectives to your work because your colleagues are very from various uh, disciplines. Are there also then challenges in terms of working with such a multidisciplinary team? And what are some of those challenges that you've, you have come across? There are some challenges. So some of these are, for example, common language. So often different disciplines use different terms to talk about things. And often have a different sort of focus or different way of approaching a problem, which is, again, part of the appeal. Sometimes the different approaches and different perspectives to approaching a problem is what helps us come up with sort of better solutions in research. But also there's some differences in how disciplines operate. So, for example, things like how authorship works on papers or, you know, how you approach an analysis issue when, for example, when data is missing, how you deal with that. But I, I do definitely think the challenges are definitely dwarfed by the opportunities and the possibilities for doing sort of really, really strong um, research that has the potential to have sort of real world impact. So I generally do think it makes the science better. And so everything takes longer. It might be more difficult. You go back and forth more. At the end of the day, the research we produce, I think, is better quality for it. And also, I think it makes you more questioning and tolerant and a better scientist, because people often get so caught up 
in the way they've been trained to do certain things and the way the, or what the best ways are of doing things in their own discipline, that they forget that there are a whole other perspectives out there. And some of those perspectives will actually say that the way you think is the best way may not even be a good way. You spoke a lot about the advantages of being in different disciplines and how the research is better in that way. Do you think that this research that it crosses multiple disciplines has an even bigger impact on society and uh, the mental health research that you investigate? Yeah, that's an interesting question. I think because we try and incorporate different disciplinary perspectives and often different stakeholders, it is possible that we can do research that then also crosses back into multiple disciplines, if that makes sense. So potentially, if you can answer questions, but also communicate about the questions you're answering and why they're important across more disciplines, potentially it could have wider reach. So I guess that is one way of thinking about the impact of research. But also because we try and work with many stakeholders and especially with the sort of birth cohort studies in Britain, because they're sort of nationally representative cohorts, often um, the results from these cohorts are sort of generalizable to the population. So we can think about how our findings apply to the generation we are investigating. And this is often of interest to a wider audience outside of academia, including, for example, policymakers and practitioners and third sector um, organizations. Um, So often that's another way that can have impact because the findings we have are of relevance and speak to the whole population's mental health rather than just children who are receiving mental health service care, for example. Great. So speaking of impact, I think uh, congratulations is in order. You were awarded the 2020 ESRC Celebrating Impact Prize for your research on children and young people's mental health. Can you tell the listeners a bit more about that? Well, it's a prize. There's nothing much to say about the prize itself. But I guess the thing to sort of note that the prize was brought to myself and my colleague, Emma Fitzsimons, who's a professor of economics. And I think this is a really nice example of the two of us have collaborated now for five, six years. And I think the research, I'm a psychologist by training, I'm an economist. And I think the research we do draws on each of the disciplines we come from. And again, as I said, in early days when we worked together, we sometimes didn't even understand what we were talking each talking about and would often have to really sit together and like explain each other's disciplinary perspectives. But I think the research that has come out of our collaboration and this prize is a testament to the fact that that research was found useful by Public Health England and the Department of Education and various different government departments And yeah, I think it's a nice sort of example of this interdisciplinary research that we've been discussing today. How did you guys end up uh, having a chat or uh, starting this partnership? I applied for a job to uh, to CLS and she hired me. Mm, I see. I see. So it's a direct partnership. (laughs) All right. So moving on then, I'd be interested to know a little bit about 
the kind of advice that maybe you would give those who want to study mental health research, especially during these trying times where funding is, is being cut. And maybe also for many researchers at the time, COVID has also impacted their line of research and data collection. What are some of your suggestions or advice for these individuals? Ooh, I'm, I'm not sure I'm a very good person to give advice. But in terms of thinking about mental health research, I think sort of what we discussed earlier, sort of thinking outside your disciplinary boundary and being open to ideas from other disciplines, but also sort of accepting that if we have to truly make population health better, we might we will need solutions from many different places. And just to give an example, so for example, I've been thinking about some of the things around financial security and like lots of the solutions to some of these problems will be legal solutions and legislative solutions. But to really understand how that would work, I think we, you ha- we'd have to do research with social policy folk and law researchers, but we don't do that often. And so another example is recently started a collaboration with geographers, but who specialize in the built environment. And again, there's lots of research on the built environment itself, and there's lots of research on mental health, but I think really to sort of bring cutting edge ways of conceptualizing the built environment and then then trying to understand how that has a bearing on our mental health is something you couldn't do as a psychologist or epidemiologist without collaborating with space and tax researchers and geographers and people who do built environment research. And again, we speak completely different languages. I don't understand half the terms that my colleagues use in the meetings we have But that's fine. I basically every two minutes put my hand up and go, I genuinely don't know what that abbreviation is. And that's how it starts. I think you sort of have to take the plunge and go through the pain of not understanding anything for a while and reading papers in fields you never thought you'd read papers in. And then eventually you can start to answer really interesting and important research questions together. That's really impressive. I mean, I find learning about my own field kind of uh, difficult in itself. And here you are learning even more fields and different disciplines and how they share perhaps more and or have more things in common than than we think are dissimilar. Up to my final question, Pravita, I know you and I have a shared interest in art and you're a jewelry designer. Um, I wondered a little bit whether your interest in the arts has, in your opinion, helped you in any way in terms of your research, your writing and so forth. Yes. I don't know how you feel about this. Um, and I'd love to hear what you think about artistic outlets helping with our research. But in my case, definitely, I sort of feel not with the writing so much, but I think being a creative person and having the focused time to do creative things has two, two benefits. I mean, so sometimes stopping work and immersing yourself in a creative thing means that actually sometimes you get ideas or you solve problems when you're not directly thinking about those problems while you're doing something else. Sort of similar to maybe some people go for a run and they solve a problem while they're running. Sometimes I solve a problem while I'm sort of shaping metal. But the other thing I think is, I think the creative process also sometimes spills into the research in that I think you allow yourself to be more creative and think outside the box. And sometimes this is outside the box of your discipline into other disciplines, but sometimes just outside the box in terms of how you might use a particular methodology to answer a different question and stuff like that. And so I think definitely being a creative person makes me a better researcher. 
And often people sort of put the sciences and the arts as being sort of contrary things. But I don't know. I think I think they're definitely each makes me better at the other. So, Parita, do you have an example then of how art can be helpful for your research? That's a really nice question. So one example, I guess, of the direct involvement of my creative side in my research is I'm really, really interested in how we can better communicate findings, both in still accurate manners, but in beautiful ways so that the findings can reach a wider audience. Because let's face it, I mean, the journal articles are all well and good, but, you know, I mean, all the tables full of numbers are not are not really designed for accessibility for a wide audience. So one sort of really nice example of this is some of our most complex research findings. We sort of worked with the graphic designer and over many months, it wasn't even a quick process and developed really, really nice infographic, which sort of summarizes the crux of the findings, but also has lots of detail in it, but it's also beautiful to look at. And I think sort of this type of Resource. So using infographics to communicate research findings has really increased the reach of our research. And for example, one of these infographics, which is based on a paper that Emlan myself did, is widely used in government and by schools and local governments as well. So I think this is a really nice example of sort of trying to really apply the creative side to communicating complex research findings, but for to try and make them more accessible and useful. And so how did you find the process of working with another creative person for these infographics you were talking about? Oh, I really enjoyed it because although I'm sort of, I'm creative, I'm not really sort of, have never before then, which was about three, four years ago, I had never actually tried to apply that to making infographics based on my research. Since then I have more and more, but that was the first time and it was really interesting to watch somebody who was really good at that, so really good at taking complex scientific findings and thinking about how to best sort of visualize these in beautiful ways. So I really enjoyed that process. But obviously, um, there was a really interesting element as well, because I was the researcher. So in this case, I also wanted the infographic to be accurate. So there was a lot of back and forth about how to make sure the nuance and sort of the complexity of the findings was still somewhere there in the infographics. It wasn't overly simplified in the pursuit of artistic goals. So I think what we ended up with is really the best of both. It's a beautiful thing to look at, but it's also accurate and represents the science, I think, in in a good, good way without sort of losing all the nuance and detail. That's great. I'd love to work with more creatives myself too. Yeah, we now try to cost into our grants, like budgets for for this, because this is the other thing, like people think that the sort of communication and impact stuff just happens. It doesn't just happen. It, it, It involves effort. You have to make the effort to make your research accessible to a wide audience. You have to want to talk to about your findings to government and policymakers and educators or whoever is interested in talking about it. You can't sort of just like write scientific papers, put them in journals and assume that enough to actually have an impact in the real world. I think I think as scientists, we often just sit in ivory towers and think, okay, we will do the science. And eventually, 15 years mm-hmm. later, somebody in government will realize we did it. I, I generally think sort of it's part of our role as scientists to communicate the science we do to a wider audience. You can't just sit in the ivory tower 
especially if you want to do science that is important for population health and well-being. Yes, definitely. So just a personal question. <laughs> then do you find yourself doing maybe 80% the science and then 20% the negotiating with and working with creatives and creating you know, impactful research? Or what's the balance like? So when I was fairly early in my career, Megan Rainsbury, who's the comms director at CLS, um, once said in a meeting, really what you scientists should do is the amount of time you spend writing a paper, that's the amount of time you should spend thinking about how you disseminate it and share it with the wider world. I mean, obviously, you know, no scientist is ever going to seriously do that. But I think, yeah, so I, I don't know what the breakdown is, but I definitely think it can't be zero. Like, I can't, I, I don't think you can give zero percent of your time to disseminating and thinking about sharing your findings to the wider world because, you know, what's the point of doing all this publicly funded research if it just sits in journals behind paywalls? Yeah, I must agree with you there. Pratitha, it has been really interesting talking with you. Thank you for joining us on the podcast and sharing your work. We wish you well with all your exciting research, including uh, your new collaborations. You can follow Pravita on Twitter at P-A-R-V Patele, and you can learn more about her research via the links in the episode notes. We've had some fascinating guests on the podcast, a real variation in topics and expertise across social science and education. Search IOE Podcast from wherever you get your podcasts and to find our archive of Research for the Real World episodes, as well as more podcasts from the IOE. And if it's a musical interlude you're after, there's a Spotify playlist too, featuring songs chosen by our guests and the IOE podcast team. Just search Research for the Real World. I'm Carrie. See you next time. Research for the Real World is brought to you by the IOE marketing and communications team. In association with IOE Research Development. This podcast is presented by me, Dr. Carrie Wong. And me, Dr. Sam Sims. The theme music was created by Rob Cochran. Tatiana Sotero-Diaz is the series advisor. Amy Leibowitz is the series producer. And Jason Illagan is the executive producer of the IOE podcast. Thanks so much for downloading and listening to this IOE podcast from the UCL Institute of Education, University College London. 